Hi, I'm Aaron Harmon. And I'm Diane Cox. Welcome to Inside Out Quality. Both Diane and I build and implement quality systems in the biotech and medical device industry. But we often get asked, is this really necessary? How do we know if we are doing too much too early? Or do we even need a quality system? Our goal is to explore questions like these through real-life events and experiences shared by our guests from various regulated industries. We will show you why quality is not just about compliance and how, when it's done right, it can help your product and company improve lives and make a difference. Welcome to our first episode of Inside Out Quality. In this episode, we want to explore the process of growing a company's quality system from infancy to a fully mature GMP system. Some companies struggled, like the one in Maine, which we will discuss, while others were successful by investing time and resources. With us to share their experiences are Doug and Robin Moffel. How did you end up working in the animal health industry? For me, it was kind of a natural progression, I guess. Um, I started out in college thinking I wanted to be a veterinarian, Mm. pre-vet, and ended up with a micro degree Went to work for the South Dakota Veterinary Diagnostics Lab. Really loved it. And um, just kind of kept following my husband, Doug, wherever he went in animal (laughs) science for a while. (laughs) And I started just at the Vet Diagnostic Lab with Robin. And then we bounced around down the center of the U.S. And then to New Zealand and back. That's how we ended up here. (laughs) And that's about the time that you and I started working together as well. When we came back. Mm -hmm. So in your career journey, you've both experienced the extremes of quality. So you've worked with companies that have had little to no quality system uh, to being involved with more complex pharmaceutical GMP. Mm -hmm. And so with that, can you talk about the transition? Well, I think the first part of it is when we started, it wasn't lacking a quality system. It was lacking a manager that supported a quality system. That's where... (laughs) Things got a little flaky. It just seemed like it was kind of gradual. Um, Little things started to have to happen. Mm -hmm. We always had SOPs in -hmm. in our, I started out in quality control in the laboratory. You always had SOPs and you followed those. But if you made a change to it, you just wrote it down. (laughs) You didn't really go through a proper process of that. Um, so it was just things like that where, oh yeah, you needed to test the next standard you were going to mm-hmm. use to make sure it was the same as the previous mm-hmm. one. Um, all of those ideas just kind of gradually came a lot of times because of um, an issue that you'd had and you had to go back and try and figure out what was going on. So yeah, it, it just kind of was a gradual thing. Looking back, I don't remember any like big aha moments that told me we have to do you know, all of the validation, all of this, all of that. In my first experience, they decided they were going to go down the GMP route. They had no idea what it was, nothing. We spent months in training at the Adams Mark Hotel and took away nothing except cookies. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. They, they, they didn't know what it was going to take, so they just gave up on it. Yep. And then the next company I went to, really did make the commitment initially, and their initial step was to build, I don't know, probably 1990, build a $50 million production building with nothing to produce there. And then they worked from that. And they thought it would take 10 years, but the statement from the management there was, or this was a, a family-owned company, a large company, and they said, 
we don't care about 10 years. We're looking for our children's children, you know, down like 100 years down the road. So they made that commitment. And my job was to develop analytics and then negotiate the animal testing with the European companies. And it, that one was a pretty pleasant experience. It, they told me it was going to take six months, my part of it. I think it took six years. And because we had to go and negotiate with every European country that we wanted to deal with. It's not like that anymore. You can pick a repertoire state, but yeah. And it was a little shocking, the amount of stuff you had to do to get to GMP. The first time I had heard of GMP, there was a coworker who had been in a GMP facility before, and their comment was, it's terrible. I think they <laughs> get come, that a lot. Yeah. But once you're there, it didn't seem as bad. You know, once you get there, things go pretty smoothly, as far as I could tell. It, it worked pretty efficiently. Yep. Some of the stuff didn't make sense, like the IQ, OQ, PQ, where you have to prove that really electricity is coming out of the wall outlet. Mm-hmm. That didn't make sense to me, but you did it. And once we got there, everything was good. And it drastically increased the number of employees at the company. We started out with, I think, three QA people. And I had to call them up just last week and ask, how many QA people are there now? And there's over 50. So, (laughs) yeah. It takes a village, though. Yeah, it It takes a village. Yep. And and maybe along the lines with that question, too, when you're in a space without a really mature quality system, Mm -hmm. have you seen a difference along that path where the errors got less? And I say that because I know some of my experiences, when there wasn't much, the mistake was expected. It mm-hmm. was kind of part of the process. I guess from my experience, when you first really start implementing GMP and, and getting into that mode, you're going to see more oh. errors Okay. in the beginning. Because people are all of a sudden, I don't know if, if they're just more focused on what's going on, but you tend to see more. But then as you go along, you do see less and less because you've also implemented mm-hmm. things where humans are no longer able to make mistakes mm-hmm. or as many because you've put in different controls and, and mm-hmm. things like that. But uh, you'll see a, an increase in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And in ours, one of the things was ours was an older company. So most of the employees were 45 to 50, and there was some pushback. Whew. Those people did not want to be put into that system. No way. I had a lady working for me that told me she wasn't able to learn. I thought, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Your story is absolutely incredible. So tell me, what has surprised you the most along your quality journey? For, For me, it's probably how many things have had to become regulations by authorities because of wrongdoing of companies, mm-hmm. not because of individual mistakes necessarily of people, but because they blatantly decided this is what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. For me, that's just do it the right way kind of thing. Yeah. So that's that was my big, yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's funny. When I give GMP training, I'll often tell people this is, this might seem like common sense. This is kind of basic you know, business operations stuff I'm about to tell you. And I think they're always a little bit shocked when they come away from the training and how much just logical sense the regulations make. 
And it's really, like you said, it's kind of sad that we have to have those in place to just do good business. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed any consistent underlying themes related to the quality problems you've experienced and witnessed? For me, it's probably been the idea that upper management Mm -hmm. is more willing to take shortcuts and try to get results immediately and thinking they're saving money especially and time. But over the years, it's a consistent, Mm -hmm. it always makes more work, takes more time, and costs a lot more money um, if they would have just done it correct the first time instead of trying to take the shortcut. So to me, that's the underlying. It, it has to come from upper management that this is really the way we want to go and yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah to instill yeah. that. It, it really does. It, it can't start mm-hmm. at middle management and below. And, yeah. you know, you'll get so far, but you won't get all the mm-hmm. way with a quality system for GMP. Mm-hmm. From the top down, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that kind of lines up with the idea of building a company for generations versus yep. building mm-hmm. a company for next for Q1, Q2 results. Yep, exactly. and- yeah, yep. There's one of the pushbacks. I should have said it before, but my boss, vice president of the whole facility, he had come out of Germany. He was a German. Two weeks before the wall came down, him and his family crawled under the wall. And he told me one day, this is anti-quality, he goes, no one will ever control me again. <laughs> but he didn't have his finger on the quality systems. Yeah, he said that. Nah, he's well, my best boss I ever had. <laughs> and maybe that's part of perception as well, is that mm-hmm. a quality system is about personal infringement mm-hmm. on your ability to operate mm-hmm. versus the tool to facilitate the job yep. you need to do. Yeah, and that's, that's another way that I think people, depending on how it's presented to them, it's like, oh my gosh, I, you know, it has to be da 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 mm-hmm. with specific rules, and I can't hold a pin a wrong way or make uh-huh. it. But after they get into it mm-hmm. and realize, it actually makes their jobs easier in a lot of ways um, because they know how they have to go about things. And if it's not that way, they need, you know, to raise their hand and say, hey, something's going on here. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a mindset. It's, mm-hmm. it's changing people. So, Doug, you sent me an article about a company. <laughs> it was Maine Biologics Laboratory. They're no longer around. No. <laughs> so could you elaborate on the, on the article and what happened? Yeah. By what I remember and what I read, they isolated a strain of avian influenza in Saudi Arabia. They smuggled that bug back to Maine Biologics. And I don't know who turned them in, but they got caught. And I think all of the upper management went to jail. And some of the lower level that testified against them, I think they got probation or whatever. But yeah, they. I'm guessing that you don't want to smuggle influenzas around the world because the judge came down on them pretty hard. Now, there's a normal path for this. So if you want to bring in a virus into the U.S., yeah. you can get a permit to yep. do that. You'd work with the USDA. Yep. They would make sure your facilities are correct mm-hmm. so that there isn't a yep. risk for getting out into the general mm-hmm. population. It's not a very difficult process to no. do because I've done just it a number of times. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if they had just followed that procedure, yep. then it would have been completely legitimate. Mm-hmm. They were just shortcutting, yeah. essentially. Yep. Get it back and get it back over there. Mm-hmm. This is the first story I've heard of where someone in quality went to jail. I think this is I think it's the only one in animal health that 
there was a company in Omaha, and I tried to find it, but this is way back. And in USDA, you have to potency test every batch. Well, these guys figured out that if you make one big good batch, you just relabel that and have it tested. And I think the owner of that company could no longer participate in animal health. I can't remember the company name, and I couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's no gold star for creativity there. <laughs> no, no. Well, there's a lot of ideas that float around. Mm-hmm. But that is what then generates new laws yep. and they become regulations. Yep. And then- yep. Well, the company that Rob and I work for, Robin, you go ahead. You know what you can say. <laughs> she spent 12 years in court so far. So <laughs> I had a deposition dress that I wore quite often. But um, yeah. there. Um, yeah, it was basically probably the most um, flagrant. <laughs> um, non-quality issue that I can think of. Um, they tried to take a lot of vaccine that had been tested in the quality control lab and found to be contaminated with a bacteria, and they were going to move it and sell it in the intrastate um, system to where, you know, the USDA had nothing to do with those, basically. And um, because I couldn't let that go, because I had signed a document that said it was going to be destroyed, um, the USDA was called in, and and, um, we ended up going through a lot of, um, as I said, depositions. Um, I was a witness for the justice system, Mm -hmm. U.S. justice system. I spent a lot of time with lawyers. Um, My children cried when the sheriff comes (laughs) to <laughs> to our house and serving me with de- yep. with subpoenas, but um, yeah, yeah. That, I I was upstairs with our kids when the sheriff came with one of the subpoenas, and the kids were crying. Why does the police have mom? <laughs> <laughs> it's dramatic. Yeah, it was. Oh. And um, yeah. I, I mean, we had to. I ended up having to get my own lawyer. I mean, I le- I left the company, and Doug got. Paid a little extra yeah. for that, apparently. I don't yep. know. I got some cash and a raise when she left. <laughs> yeah. Now, just out of curiosity, did were there patient problems with the vaccine, or were there no? What it spawned was, the the trials? And we had called the USDA after we found out he was going to move this product that was contaminated okay. and was destined for um, destruction. We actually came in the next day, and he had replaced it with something else. So it was actually um, a fraudulent product that he was going to have us destroy. Right. Mm-hmm. And But it never got into patients, or, mm-hmm. and this would have been cattle. Yeah. Um, so there was never any adverse mm-hmm. reaction or anything no. like that. Right. We, we stopped it before it got to that. But Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But with, the, with the main uh, company— there was a, a comment in the news article mm. uh, where the judge had said during the trial, mm. if any one defendant had done the right thing, no one would be here in this courtroom today. Mm. You know, in that case with that company, yeah. it would have taken mm. someone saying, yep. you know, wait a minute. You were wondering how that came about, right? Like through peer pressure. And, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm guessing there was pressure from above and from the peers once one guy 
agrees to do it. If you're in a mm-hmm. company where you have not developed a quality system, mm-hmm. you're not familiar with what is the true right and wrong, I think it's easy to get caught up in second guessing yourself and saying, mm-hmm. is it really a big deal? You know, is there really a rule that we have to do this? Mm-hmm. Is that really a requirement? Mm-hmm. Am I overinterpreting things? Am I making it more complicated than it has to be? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, because you can always kind of gloss over it and say, oh, it was just a document that yeah. we missed or something like mm-hmm. that. Whereas it it really has long-term effects if people don't mm-hmm. understand what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So what does it take for a new company to instill quality in their daily work? Well, I think it kind of goes back again. And a new company is is probably a little bit easier because we've kind of alluded to it that mm-hmm. if the top management going down mm-hmm. is willing to make some sacrifices as far as making sure they take the time and get that instilled in new employees, um, it, it's a little bit easier than, you know, maybe starting with a company that's been in business for a few years and you have the older employees. Um, because, and I, I think another thing for me, and I've seen it in a couple of companies, even um, older ones, but if you get the shop floor employees involved in quality and let them make some decisions and see how it affects things and give them some responsibilities rather than someone saying, as, as you say, that I'm controlling you, you have to do it mm-hmm. this way. If they can understand why they're doing it, mm-hmm. um, we actually had, and this was not animal health, but we actually brought in patients for a drug that we were part of. It was a medical device company, Mm -hmm. but we actually brought in patients that used our product. And it was amazing the difference that made for the people that, you know, even Mm -hmm. cleaned in the kitchen and stuff. They were like, wow, we really are making this for an actual patient Mm -hmm. and and understanding that it, it could be one of their they're family members, mm-hmm. so um, it, it's kind of altruistic saying all that, but it, mm-hmm. it really does it does make a difference mm-hmm. if you get people involved mm-hmm. from the very mm-hmm. beginning. And I think in ours, you had to have a, a plan set forth and follow it because the first company, it was just random. No one knew what was coming the next day. And at BI, everything was laid out pretty clearly the steps that were going to be taken all throughout the company. And they, that company had been around for quite a while for companies that are yeah, existing that. and not new and yep. trying to improve their systems. Yep. That company had been, I think, since the early 50s. When was it? Ooh, hog cholera. Whenever hog cholera broke, that's how they started is a hog cholera treatment. And it was single family owned, and that was a wild company. They had tigers and monkeys at the company that had nothing to do with animal health. Yeah, and they still think there's, people in the town still think there's monkeys roaming the river. <laughs> but yeah, um, they started out a long time ago. Now we'll take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Today's startups become tomorrow's growth engines. In South Dakota, we're entering a new stage of expansion for our biotech industry, and you'll want to be part of it. Hi. I'm Joni Johnson, Executive Director of South Dakota Biotech. We're the state affiliate of the International Bio Organization, and we're proud to be leading a state that's driving innovation to feed, 
fuel, and heal the world. South Dakota Biotech is here to inform, to connect, and to advocate for our critical industry. Whether you're directly involved in biotechnology or looking to learn more about it, we want to hear from you. Find us at www.sdbio.org. Now, back to the show. So, Robin, you said that it's, from your perspective, easier for the younger companies to mm-hmm. kind of set this quality culture. And, you know, like you said, from the top down, kind of uh, mm-hmm. implement quality throughout the organization. Now, for those more established companies, let's say they're having some quality problems. Is it too late for them? It's not too late, mm-hmm. but I, they cannot expect an immediate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and there really are trying to change. I, I, I don't know if you guys have gone through that um, who moved my cheese <laughs> exercise. <laughs> I've heard part of it. <laughs> yeah. So it's basically um, going through an exercise of how, how you deal with change, mm-hmm. whether you know, you're gung-ho, I want to get it. Um, done. You need all the facts before you can, you know, change. Um, but it, it it was very interesting mm-hmm. to see how different people, even in the quality mm-hmm. department um, mm-hmm. of an older company, you know, some of us were very resistant mm-hmm. to change. But if you can get a few of those people mm-hmm. on board, it just seems like everything goes a little mm-hmm. bit smoother. Yeah. Um, but there is always a couple of mm-hmm. the old regime that you may have to give an ultimatum to because <laughs> mm-hmm. they just drag down the rest. But it's it's never too late. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. is a little bit more difficult, and it takes probably some extra time. But if you can set some goals to where they're small enough, you can see some improvement. And and I always think of quality as continuous improvement as well as the opposite. So if you can show them that when they're doing something in quality, it's actually making their lives a little bit easier to kind of get that win and then they start kind of falling into place. Right. Yeah. Resistance to change, is that driven off of some perception that it will just be more difficult than is necessary or any insight in why people would be resistant? I think some of it is, but more so, it, there are certain personalities that don't like change. And I think you'll find that a lot of those people are in quality control because it's a, it's, it's a routine. You do this, you do this, you do this. And in production, you do this, you do this, you do this. So for someone to come in and say, oh, but now if you do it this way, it's going to work better. I think it's Mm -hmm. a little bit of prove it to me and no, because I've always done it this way, not to. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is you you can't make my work harder. Mm -hmm. So, And a lot of ours thought it was going to be a lot harder because in our production building, everything was computer control. Everything. And you put somebody my age in there, not me, I go along (laughs) with it, but there were a lot of them that just refused to do that. We had people buying equipment just because it wasn't computer-controlled, so they didn't have to learn it. Mm-hmm. This might be a good time to talk with Stephanie Armstead with Prairie Aquatech. She's here with us today. You want to tell us about Prairie Aquatech? Sure. So uh, Prairie Aquatech um, is based out of Brookings, South Dakota, and then also in Volga. Um, we have two different divisions currently. Um, our product development division 
um, is located in Brookings at the Ag Tech Center. And there we do research, testing, and trials on um, different innovative plant-based technologies and how they may assist in um, aquaculture feeds. They have a full recirculating aquaculture system there where they do different testing. They have a feed mill there um, where they can test feed formulation and production. And then there's also a lab there. So that's where the product, which is called ME Pro, that we make at the large-scale manufacturing plant over in Brookings was refined and tested. So just over a year ago in 2018, 2019, um, we concluded production of the manufacturing facility. Um, and there is where we use the technology that was developed at the Ag Tech Center to make MEPRO or microbially enhanced protein to include in aquaculture diets, all sorts of different salmon, um, trout, shrimp, but then also there are some other applications that we're exploring as well. Wow, that's great. And it's kind of hard to imagine that in Brookings, South Dakota, you would have a seafood <laughs> feed producing company. That's yes. take, taking advantage of the resources. and Yes, a little bit more about how it was developed. If we have just a couple of minutes, sure. two professors at SDSU there in Brookings actually developed the technology. One of them is a was a professor in the wildlife and fisheries department and saw a need to replace fish meal as a major protein source in aquaculture diets. And the other gentleman is an industrial microbiologist. And he said, I think maybe I have um, an organism in mind that could help accomplish that goal. So they used soybean meal is what they ultimately ended up with as the substrate. So they did a bunch of research and here we are. That's pretty exciting to see your company able to get that product out and, and grow the way it has. So you've been with Prairie Aquatech for three years now. I'm assuming you've seen a lot of growth in that time, uh, both in the company and your skills. Are there any personal highlights you'd like to share? Sure. I guess more of them are probably company highlights than personal highlights, but the two kind of go hand in hand. When I started at Prairie Aquatech, my uh, background was more in laboratory management and quality control um, from that aspect. So when I started at Prairie Aquatech as the director of quality, we were, you know, we didn't really have a, a quality control program or a feed safety program. So I got to go do a bunch of different training, attend some some seminars, which was great. And then we kind of grew together. I got to work with the great team that we have there. Um, and we implemented a lot of quality processes and procedures that were honestly already being done just because they're good, you know, good manufacturing practices, good research practices as well, you know, making sure all of your calibration equipment or your measurement equipment is calibrated, um, those types of things. But we got to develop the plan and Continuous improvement is a big part of it. Uh, Robin mentioned earlier maybe that having the production employees and, and the operators get involved and have their hands in on a lot of the quality control steps can be very beneficial, and it really has been for us So and for me personally as well. Now, something you pointed out is that most of the procedures were already there. And a lot of times that's how it goes, where people have a practice, the practice is the right practice, 
And really a quality system, you know, part of it in that case is just going back and documenting it. Now, the FDA will say you must have a something, something established. And that established is, is defined as you, you have defined the procedure, you have documented the procedure, and then you have implemented the procedure. And with the small companies, so many of them, they start with a few people, they're developing all those procedures, they're implementing them right away, but it's just going back and documenting them. Yep, you're absolutely right. We had, like I said, a lot of really good practices already in place. We just needed the, the procedures written from, you know, 15 post-it notes on the wall next to a piece <laughs> of equipment to here's an actual standardized procedure. And then, you know, the, the documentation and, and the record keeping to go along with all of that. Um, it just goes to, to show Robin's point earlier about things being generally just good business practices. Mm-hmm. How much the GMPs are really just based on that. And most likely because people weren't following those good business practices to begin with. That's very true. Yeah, we have, as I mentioned before, um, an example was calibration of measurement equipment. I've been fortunate enough to have a really good group of production and operations staff that are, they're willing to learn. You know, we built a brand new multi-million dollar facility that has all sorts of automation and, and neat equipment and instrumentation that they're just as interested in, in learning how it works and how to care for it as we are as, and you know, how to run it and get good quality product out the, at the back end of the plant. So they've been, you know, fortunately for me and for our, our other management members, they've been willing to learn. You know, earlier we talked about, someone mentioned they started with three quality control staff members and now reach back out and they have over 50. Well, our our quality department, like actual quality people, is me. And I can't do it all by myself. So fortunately for me, I have a very good group, you know, support staff in in the other members of management who who are very, you know, willing to help encourage, you know, the the production team and the operations team and also to go out there, you know, by themselves and get their hands dirty, if you will, in, you know, calibrating things or something needs to be cleaned or, you know, whatever the case might be to make sure that we have a, a safe quality product. One rule of thumb that I've heard is for a biotech company, if you have 25 employees, you should have one person in quality. And I think that works because quality is essentially everyone's job. And I don't know that people really understand that initially when you're rolling out a quality system, but they're the ones that are defining the procedures and they're the ones that are implementing the procedures. They're the ones making choices on equipment purchases. They have so much involvement anyways that you don't need a large quality staff unless you've really gotten large as a company. And if you have to have a very large quality staff for a small number of people, it might just be because they haven't thoroughly implemented quality practices across the team. That makes sense. If you're a big pharma company and you have 40,000 people on staff that you will have. Full department makes sense. A very big department of quality. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. I would, I would love to have, have, you know, even another person for, you know, I don't, I don't live there, but sometimes (laughs) I feel like I do. Um, But like I said, we're very fortunate that the group that we have, um, you know, when we were hiring our, 
production team, we don't, there's not another Prairie Aquatech. We couldn't just go to another company, you know, a few, mi- mm-hmm. a few miles down the road or, you know, the next state over and say, hey, we're building a new plant just like yours, but ours is shiny and new. Come work for us. Um, so we have a very diverse background of, you know, when it comes to our employees and a lot of them have some relevant experience, some not so much, but everyone has been eager to learn and help in implementing all of these different quality and feed safety initiatives that we do have. Doug, do you want to chime in? Yeah. Um, In the quality, where where you massively increase the employment is everyone in our production unit that did something had somebody standing behind them watching. (laughs) Everyone had somebody watching them. Is that right, Robin, and yours? They have to initial that I observed you do this. When you get a quality system that people understand and can work with, it doesn't necessarily have to be another quality person. It's a a second check. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But especially in human pharmaceuticals, they do expect quality people on the floor, not one-to-one ratio, but yeah, uh, Mm -hmm. a larger group. So, yeah, it it increases. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it it certainly does. I yes, I will definitely admit there's a large difference between a, a pharmaceutical company and and Prairie Aquatech. Definitely. <laughs> but we are, like I mentioned, it's a brand new facility. We have um, a lot of instrumentation that is automated, so our digital system um, gives us readouts real time of pH, temperature, different pressures, and things like that all throughout the plant. And fortunately for us in our in our process, um, a lot of it is I don't want to say hands off because there's there's always things going on and things to do, but there is a lot of automation. And so a lot of times the the work that we're doing that our operators are doing is the second check. You know, the sample that you pull to run a, a pH on that is a second check to the inline instrumentation know that that type of thing so that's how we've been um, able to to keep that number of quality quality control um, team members you know to a minimum I guess Um, so it's that's beneficial for you know for the operation of the company we want to be efficient we want to be effective so I think we're doing a very good job so far. Yeah so Stephanie it sounds like it is possible to be both efficient and have good quality. (laughs) It is. Interesting. (laughs) I know. Strange, right? So when it comes to ensuring high quality feed, what would you say is the most important thing for the employees to practice? For me, what I try to instill in them from the get-go is just sticking to the basics. Like we mentioned before, a lot of good manufacturing practices and, and kind of quality or feed safety initiatives are centered around those good manufacturing practices and honestly common sense practices, good business practices. So housekeeping is a big one for me. I ask a lot of questions about when was that cleaned, what you clean it with, all those types of things. Uh, Preventive maintenance is another big one. And then also process control. So housekeeping, if we can't keep the facility clean, inevitably there's going to be an issue with something, whether a piece of equipment breaks down, we have some sort of a, you know, that those things can lead to contamination issues, all that, that kind of stuff. And, 
you know, when we we have a brand new state of the art facility, we're going to get requests for tours. We're going to have, you know, all sorts of other people that want to come in and, and see the facility. And to be perfectly honest, we like to show it off. So it's not fun to show someone a dirty facility. So cleanliness is is a big deal for us. Our preventive maintenance program is equally as important. Equipment and facilities that are clean and properly maintained are going to result in fewer breakdowns, fewer quality or potentially feed safety issues. So we have a, a great group of maintenance employees that, uh, that work very hard uh, to keep, keep all of our equipment up and, and running smoothly. And then I mentioned process control. And it's really the most important, but if we don't have a clean facility and our housekeeping isn't kept up and we don't have our preventive maintenance program in check, then we're not going to have process control. Something's going to happen. You know, our equipment isn't going to function right, um, or we're going to end up with some sort of other issue. You guys have been in quality for a long time. I'm sure you can come up with plenty of options, but something's going to spiral out of control. We're not going to have process control, and then we're going to have quality or feed safety issues with the finished product. So those are kind of the things that I, that I preach frequently. For someone like myself who's starting out in um, a career in quality, whether you knew that's what you wanted to get into or not, just getting as much diverse experience as you can, whether that be in different types of facilities, whether you go into a a pharma company or a, a feed manufacturing facility or someone making medical devices or human food, any of those types of things, or even just different departments within your company. You know, how does the quality control of the product impact the finance department? Um, how does the quality control or feed safety of, of the food, you know, impact, you know, your analytical lab and, and all those different aspects of the business and how everything ties together, because I know it has certainly been enlightening to me and in some cases helped me see a potential solution to to an issue we were having from a different angle. Yeah, Stephanie, I love that. I, I think diversity among just within your company, like you said, or going out and seeing how different companies do generally the same things within quality, it can be a really, really good learning experience. And I I kind of want to echo that because I think a lot of people are scared to show on their resumes multiple companies that they worked for. And it might seem as though they've been jumping around, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the first to admit I've got a lot of companies listed on mine. <laughs> and it, it was the best learning experience for me. So good, good point from my perspective. Diversity within your organization also helps you understand the interactions and how it adds value. I, I would always think from a sales stance, so I'm, I I'm not in sales. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. Um, but I knew there was always someone on the end that had to sell our product. And if I didn't do my job, then it made their job way more difficult. And if something impacted, like if we had back orders because we had a quality failure, then that salesperson now has to deal with a problem that I could have prevented. Thank you yep. for being on the podcast with yep. us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. You know, Doug had brought up the importance of management involvement, and they really set the pace for the company. It's also a regulatory requirement. So the <laughs> it F absolutely is, yeah. The, the FDA spells out, and for those that aren't familiar, 
uh, when a law is put in place, that law gets turned in regulations. And the regulations are then found in what we call CFR, which is the Codified Federal Regulations. Mm-hmm. And if you go there, you know, in the, in the space, especially for medical devices, there's a section on management responsibility. And that includes a number of elements. And it starts with management. Mm-hmm. Management has to be the ones making sure that a quality system is put in place. There are several materials, too, that kind of support that regulation. And I remember reading one time that management, while they can delegate activities, they cannot delegate their responsibility. They're ultimately responsible for the quality and the effectiveness of the company and the product and so on. And so absolutely, management is responsible. And again, it's kind of echoing what Robin had said about how it really starts from the top. And if you really hold those those regulations um, in high regard, then you really are practicing and following um, the top-down approach and implementing that within your organization. In the case of the company from Maine, the quality person did end up getting a prison term, Mm -hmm. but sort of the president. So it was the president of the company, their chief veterinarian. It was all of their leadership as well. Well, and I think that's more common from what I hear in various stories where you know, companies are um, prosecuted for whatever reason. It typically is the CEO, the president that you'll hear about being handcuffed, maybe um, escorted. It's very, very rare for the quality regulatory person, <laughs> like you said. It that's is. the first story I've heard where that's, that's been the case. Yeah, and quality persons, their job is to ensure that the management's needs for a quality system to be maintained are maintained. Mm-hmm. It starts with management. Management then would bring in some kind of quality structure mm-hmm. and use that to ensure the company meets those quality requirements. Right. Like you said, one of those main responsibilities of management is to bring on qualified individuals to do the activities within the quality system. And so if they're hiring the right people, those people will then, it'll, it'll trickle down from there. So company starting out with no quality system at all. Maybe mm-hmm. they've got a technology, they've got enough of an inkling that's going to become a product. Mm-hmm. They've got some money now to do this mm-hmm. and they're trying to develop their product to get through a regulatory channel. Quality plan is probably a good place to start. Quality plan should always be number one, I think, in that kind of a scenario. When you're starting out, quality plans are really meant to help you scope out an endeavor to scope it, to plan it, to make sure that you're considering what's needed in order to implement what it, whatever it is that you're trying to do, whether it's a change um, in your production line or whether it's, in this case, an implementation of a brand new quality system. Quality planning is a really good tool to use to assess what is impacted, what do I need to do, what's my scope of activities. Um, absolutely a great tool to to then also use as a communication to others, including management. You know, that quality plan becomes the structure of what activities will be done to achieve the ultimate goal. And a quality system takes a lot of work to get in place. It sure does. You can't do it all at once. And so having a plan allows you to break it into priorities and say, this is the first step. This Mm -hmm. is the most important thing. We need to get a plan for how we're going to do SLPs. Mm-hmm. We're going to do that before we try to write a whole bunch. Yeah. And then maybe after we have that, then the next step is how do we 
approve SLPs and maybe what a template we're going to use. But you're doing steps to get there and knowing that you're not going to be able to just overnight put something solid in place without Mm -hmm. having gone through a number of small steps over time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's a common, I'm going to call it a problem or a potential issue that I see is that people will oftentimes, you know, they'll download, there's there's procedures, there are all kinds of quality manuals online, they'll download those and use them as kind of their quality system. Mm. And I, it could work if you implement it correctly, but I think the problem that happens is a lot of people will um, take those and they'll just, you know, basically say once they have the procedures, their quality system is implemented. When in fact, that's not true. They still have a lot of training to do. People need to be aware of these procedures. They need to follow these procedures. And so I think that's um, absolutely the, a good point that you make. I had come across this small paragraph in a guidance document from the FDA. And the document is Quality Systems Approach to Pharmaceutical CGMP Regulations. And what the paragraph is talking about is that Quality assurance's job is to be independent. So you, it's as the role in quality, you can't oversee or audit stuff that you've done yourself. Mm-hmm. But there's going to be times in really small companies where there may be only a handful of people and you need someone to go do a task and that someone happens to be the quality person. Mm-hmm. You have flexibility, is what this paragraph is saying, to do that as a person in quality if someone else is able to then check. And so it says something like, under a quality system, it's normally expected that the product and process development units, the manufacturing units, and quality unit will remain independent. In very limited circumstances, a single individual can perform both production and quality functions. That person is still accountable for implementing all the controls and reviewing the control results of manufacture to ensure the product quality standards have been met. Under such circumstances, it is recommended that another qualified individual not involved in the production operation, conduct an additional periodic review of the quality unit activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so having there is some flexibility in it, but the concept remains where it is. Mm-hmm. You have someone ensuring that the practices that are meant to keep the product made correctly are being followed. Yeah. Yeah, that's very important when it comes to those very small companies that are just getting started um, with their quality system. You know, maybe they are actually in their design control um, milestone. Maybe they've met the design control milestone, but they haven't um, yet started hiring all of these individuals necessary to um, really be able to have that true independence. And so this is super important. Um, another way that I think a lot of companies will achieve that same idea is by outsourcing. Um, and so that's where contractors, qualified individuals that have done this before can be called upon. You have a contract in place with them, a service agreement, and they can, as qualified individuals, be the second check on those. Then you hire an army of consultants. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and ask Diane for help. <laughs> so, Diane, was there anything that stuck out about Doug and Robin as they were talking about their stories? Is there any something specific that you were like, wow? Well, first of all, I just love their dynamic. I love um, seeing them as a couple, um, generally in the same industry, yet also experiencing the same types of quality journey um, along the way. And so that was really, really cool to see. But um, the things that stuck out to me, I mean, again, it's just um, 
comes down to the basics of quality and what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And as Robin said, um, as we've heard from Stephanie as well, so much of a good quality culture comes from the top. Um, and it, as much as you can ingrain quality within the everyday operations, as Stephanie said, in the production area, um, having people involved and actually creating um, and improving the, the processes, that um, is my experience as well. And I just love that they, um, they pulled that out and were able to highlight that on the show today. Having worked with Doug for about 10 years, uh, him and I were kind of along some of that transition as well. And so mm-hmm. the whole um, employee base moved along with it. And so they were developing skills. And so people who had been in that company for 20, 30 or more years mm-hmm. have completely transitioned into a really, to almost like experts in how to do it the correct way yeah. and ensure that every regulation was being met and mm-hmm. that it was being documented correctly and there and so those problems very much evaporated. Sure. Because the people had changed, the system changed, mm-hmm. and there were certainly rough times early on. Yeah. But over the years, it improved dramatically. Yeah, sure. Those scars don't leave, do they? <laughs> but they also keep us like a reminder. Yeah, absolutely. On why it's important. And, yep. you know, there, another cost of it, you know, there is, you know, in the case of the main uh, company, there is quite a bit legally that happened there. Mm-hmm. But there's also other trickle-down, maybe lesser thought-of elements like wasted product mm-hmm. that didn't pass quality control checks and had to get discarded. Right. Or wasted time on repeat measures. So having to rerun a production lot or rerun a test or you know, an animal study that did not work because something had not been done right. Right. Mm-hmm. And those won't make the news, but those will definitely impact product availability, profitability, all of those things get hit when mm-hmm. you don't have something in place to prevent a lot of the unnecessary errors. Right, right. Yeah, and um, I think it was Robin that mentioned earlier, there's, from from the management perspective, there's often this race between time and quality. And it doesn't always have to be that way. I think they can go hand in hand. I think you can build a, an efficient quality system and still be able to meet timelines that your management team expects. Um, it's a fine balance, certainly, and it's difficult to find, but it's possible. And Prairie Aquatech's probably a good example of things working really well early on, I especially. I think so. Very rare story from my perspective, but yes. I had been, my graduate work was up at SDSU, mm-hmm. and so I know some of the faculty that are involved with that. Mm-hmm. And just being able to see from my memories of them back in the lab to now having a multi-million dollar production facility. So cool. Yep, very good. Okay, well, we want to thank you for joining us for our first episode. Please tune in next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This was brought to you thanks to South Dakota Biotech Association. If you have a story you'd like us to explore and share, let us know by visiting www.sdbio.org. Other resources for quality include the University of South Dakota's Biomedical Engineering Department, where you can find courses on quality systems, regulatory affairs, and medical product development. Also, if you live in the Sioux Falls area, check out Quibit, a local quality assurance professionals network. You can find out more about Quibit by clicking on the link on our website too. Diane and I would like to thank several people, but a few who stand out are Nate Peppel for his support with audio mixing, Barbara Doral Christian for her support with graphics design and web, and lastly, the support from South Dakota Bio.